think again. She's Gina Keating, investigative reporter. And he's Michael Flaherty, award-winning filmmaker. And this is Raven 2-3, Presumption of Guilt. In the last episode, Mike and I introduced ourselves and talked about the factors that collided on September 16, 2007, in an incident the international press called the Nasser Square Massacre. It was a shootout in a traffic circle in Baghdad between Iraqi insurgents and United States military contractors. Those are the facts, facts that the government's own investigators testified to in grand jury hearings and then later tried to recant. We'll talk about why later. Somewhere between 8 and 34 Iraqis were killed or wounded. Nobody has a reliable casualty count, but we'll get into why not later on in the podcast. In this episode, we examine how a vindictive judge, predictable foreign policy failures, and the Republican obsession with privatization set four veterans from small American towns on the road to Nisser Square. Mike, let's start with the Republicans and their dreams of privatizing the military. You tell this part since you found the clip. All right, so it's September 10th, 2001. Secretary of State Donald Rumsfeld stands up at a meeting with Pentagon bureaucrats, and he talks about his new vision for streamlining the Department of Defense. He wants to privatize functions like janitorial services, accounting, and warehouse operations. It's not communism that's the enemy. Bureaucracy, Rumsfeld said, was the Pentagon's number one enemy. I was in the Pentagon uh, in having a breakfast meeting with a group of eight or ten congressmen. I said to them, there'll be something that'll happen in the next year or two that, that we'll, we'll be concerned about and wish that we'd taken the steps to increase our defense budget. At the same time that Rumsfeld was giving his speech, three men checked into a Marriott hotel near Dulles Airport. Hi, are you checking in? It was less than 30 minutes away from the Pentagon. Two of these men were on a terrorist watch list. They had established ties to Osama bin Laden, yet they were able to book their hotel and plane tickets using their own names and credit cards. Would you just spell that last name for me? When they checked into Dulles Airport the next morning to board Flight 77, no red flags were set off at the FAA. More on how this happened and how it could have easily been avoided a bit later. Sadly, there's a little need to recap the events of what happened on Flight 77. One of the terrorists flew the plane directly into the Pentagon. Just 24 hours earlier, Rumsfeld had been talking about war using clever metaphors. That was the last time he would speak about war in the abstract. As he pulled bodies from the rubble, he realized that the United States was involved in a war that was real and terrifying. Oh my goodness, we're looking at a uh, live picture from Washington and there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. It would appear that there has been another major explosion, this one in the nation's capital. You are looking at a scene of parent blast aftermath. There is smoke in the air over the Pentagon. Eric Prince, a recently retired Navy SEAL, watched the horror unfold on television, sitting in a barber's chair in Virginia. He was devastated, but he wasn't surprised. In fact, his experience as a SEAL taught him the future of war was going to be fought in unconventional ways. Prince thought he had just the answer. 
For years, he had been training a group of veteran Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, and other experienced warriors, turning them into an elite fighting force. The name of his company was Blackwater. Like so many other lies and misunderstandings Prince would endure over the next 10 years, the name Blackwater itself was not dreamed up by a marketing expert to strike fear into the enemy or to intimidate people. The origin of the name was actually dull and uninspired. The training facility that Prince built in North Carolina was surrounded by mud and black water, thus the name. But for a lazy press corps, it would become the perfect shorthand for any tragedy or misstep committed by anybody during the war. But for now, Blackwater was largely anonymous. Mike, I'm glad you brought us back to 9-11 and to Washington, D.C., because there's another important person I want to introduce. While Rumsfeld was pulling bodies out of an airplane-sized hole in the side of the Pentagon, another public servant was sitting in a town car on the other side of the Potomac with a pretty good idea of how all this happened, because he probably could have prevented it. That person was Royce Lamberth, and he was the chief judge of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. That's the court that decides whether to let intelligence agencies conduct secret surveillance, like wiretaps, on terror suspects. The court also controls how much of that information the spy agencies can share with law enforcement agencies, like the FBI. Lamberth was not into sharing. Six months before the September 11th attacks, Judge Lamberth accused an FBI agent of lying on a wiretap application. That's a felony, a career ender. An investigation later found that the agent had made an inadvertent paperwork error, but Lamberth would not let up. U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft and FBI Chief Louis Free begged him to back off. In response, Lamberth barred the agent from his courtroom and demanded an internal investigation. Here's how Stuart Baker, the former general counsel at the National Security Agencies, remembers all this in his book, Skating on Stilts, Why We Aren't Stopping Tomorrow's Terrorism. We reached out to Mr. Baker, but like most people who have dealt with Judge Lamberth, he declined to go on the record. For the first and only time in its history, the FISA court was disciplining an FBI agent, singling him out by name and barring him from any appearances before the court. Why? because the court no longer trusted his assurances that the FBI was observing the elaborate set of rules the court had erected to protect the civil liberties of terrorist suspects. Stewart went on to say that Lambert's wrath had grave consequences. When FBI agents learned from the National Security Agency that a high-level al-Qaeda terrorist named Khalid al-Midhar had entered the United States in August of 2001, they had to let him go. Lambert's order meant they weren't supposed to know that he was in the country. Nobody wanted to risk crossing Judge Lambert. Less than two weeks later, Khalid al-Midhar helped pilot American Airlines Flight 77 into the west wall of the Pentagon. And uh, this is go for 06. It looks like that aircraft crashed into the Pentagon, sir. Not surprisingly, Judge Lambert changed his tune on approving warrantless wiretaps after September 11th. What I found that bothered me was the notion that the court was a rubber stamp because we we're approving so much. We're approving it because it should be approved, because it's valid, because what the government is doing here is the kinds of things we should be doing. And in the days following 9-11, I went to some of the most blood-curdling uh, meetings and briefings 
in my lifetime to hear some of the things that we're being told that might be the next follow-up. In its report, the 9-11 Commission did not address Judge Lamberth by name. Anyone following it knew exactly who they were talking about, however. This is what the Commission had to say about his order. Action officers should have been able to draw on all available knowledge about Al-Qaeda and the government. Management should have assured that all information was shared and duties were clearly assigned across agencies and across the foreign domestic divide. While Judge Lamberth was finding religion about national security, Dustin Hurd, Paul Slough, Nick Slatton, and Evan Liberty were taking the fight to battlefields in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were repeatedly denied in-person interviews with Dustin, Paul, Nick, and Evan by federal prison officials, so all interviews you'll hear with them were conducted by telephone. The warden at FCI Memphis, where Dustin is housed, threatened him with solitary confinement if he called me. So his dad, Stacy, recorded these calls. The little platforms, you had made pot and chaos. If I remember the names correctly, it's from years ago. They're about two, three miles off the coast, five miles, I don't recall exactly. Dustin Hurd was among the first to go to war for the United States in late 2002. He landed in Bahrain with the Marine Corps Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team. The FAST team spent most of its time training, Dustin told me, but his unit was called to duty for search and rescue missions and for a well-publicized raid on two Iraqi oil platforms. We went in with the SEALs and the Polish Special Forces and ended up taking it. I'm supposed to be dead right now. They have that place fired to blow. They're supposed to release the valves to start pumping the oil into the ocean as soon as we got there and then ignited the platform to kill us. So obviously I'm still here. They didn't didn't do what they're supposed to do. On his second trip overseas, Dustin patrolled the Afghan-Pakistan border with the 2nd Battalion 8th Marines. President Bush had declared mission accomplished on major combat operations, but the mission kept getting more complicated. The Marines were pushing back against cross-border attacks by Taliban insurgents who had fled into Pakistan after the U.S. invasion. Basically what we did is we patrolled the area something happened, like a weapons cache, we'd go hit in, you know, go in, raid it, they'd bring in trucks, we'd go blow the munitions. Now, we took a couple of prisoners during that time, I don't know who they were, we just, some folks that ended up beating the, I guess, the OTA side, where they could figure out who they are, if there's somebody important. Nick Slatton had joined the 82nd Airborne out of high school in 2002, and a year later landed in the thick of the conflict. His platoon was patrolling the Sunni Triangle northwest of Baghdad, right where the disbanded Iraqi military was reconstituting itself as insurgents, with the help of the Iranians. We were on two-week rotations. The best I remember, this is what we did. We did two weeks of day missions, which included just presence patrols through our area of operations. Basically, we would just walk through the little villages in the cities, right? just establish a presence with the local population. And then we look for any kind of insurgent activity, any kind of enemy activity, basically like search and destroy missions, anything that was happening. We basically just let the people that wanted us there know that we weren't going to let them down, right? And then we would do two weeks of night missions, which included ambush operations and night raids, or we went after high-value personnel and... We would go and have specific names that we were looking for, specific faces, and we would capture those people. 
Nick wrapped up the mission in April of 2004, not long after violence in an insurgent stronghold called Fallujah peaked with the graphic murders of four American military contractors. The men were ex-Special Forces delivering supplies to American troops for Eric Brintz's Blackwater Worldwide. Men dressed as Iraqi police stopped the Blackwater caravan, shot them, and pulled them from their trucks. The insurgency made sure that Americans at home saw what happened next in internet videos. Their bodies were burned and dangled from a bridge as Iraqis celebrated. It was the first time most people had heard the names Fallujah and Blackwater, and they would hear a lot of both in the months to come. Subduing Afghanistan had been a piece of cake compared to the sophistication and savagery of the Iraqi insurgency. The insurgents had organized themselves into factions. The Mahdi Army and Jaish al-Mahdi are two groups that you'll hear more about. They were everywhere, and their main focus seemed to be disrupting whatever the American government was doing to stabilize Iraq and get the hell out. Remember how Vice President Dick Cheney said the Iraqis were going to greet us as liberators when we toppled Saddam Hussein? That didn't happen. In fact, the mission got so complicated that the U.S. military began recruiting its own soldiers as counterinsurgents. One of them was Nick Slatton. So basically, the primary purpose of a sniper is to report battlefield information. So you have to be undetected by the enemy, of course, and then you have to be able to relay information back to your chain of command. So you have to, you have to be able to see things that normal soldiers can't see, right? You notice little things. They teach you about attention to detail. They teach you about target observation and target identification and stuff, you know, like little things. Basically, they teach you how to outsmart your enemy. Nick went back to Iraq in 2005 for a short deployment to guard the border in Kurdistan against Iranian forces who were eager to join the fight. This time, the Kurds had everything under control. Nick and his platoon had little to do but socialize warily. They were uh, genuinely good people. They were very hospitable. They had, I mean, I remember one mission. I was a sergeant, and I think the whole platoon was with us, and the company commander was with us for some reason. But we we hiked like, I don't know, it was probably like five or six miles up the side of this mountain, this little village that was nestled in the side of the mountain. And there was a... a river that was swallowing through the village and there was all these houses kind of like it was basically like a cul-de-sac built back into the mountain right at a dead end so as we walked into it it was a perfect place for them to set up an ambush on us so i was obviously thinking that this was a bad idea for us to just go up in there right so i'm setting up where i can observe through my optics a long ways away and then i push up to where I leave everybody behind, and I push up myself into that position just in case they initiate something. It'll just be me up there. And then I see movement in the doorway. And so I look through my optic, and it's a woman, and she comes running out of the house, and she's got something in her hand, and she's screaming something. And I'm like, okay, well, this is bad. And I I notice, and it's a tea kettle, and she's got a little fire burning already out in the yard. And she sets the tea kettle on the fire, and she's screaming Berkerbik, which in Kurdish means welcome. She's she's yelling welcome, right? And then she starts dragging all these chairs out of her house, and she starts lining the chairs up around the fire. So I'm like, all right, so either this is a trap or uh, this lady's just 
being very nice, right? So I, I move up and I call a few of my guys up. And sure enough, their local village leader, he comes out and starts talking to us. And uh, they made us tea. <laughs> we sat around and talked to them. That was, uh, it was definitely a, it was a way different environment than my first deployment. Back in the States, Paul Slough returned from his honeymoon to a letter from the Texas National Guard. He was going to Iraq. By 2005, the government was running out of soldiers. There were a lot of heroic stories about people joining up on 9-11, but the U.S. Armed Forces got only a modest bump in enlistments as a result of the worst terrorist attack on American soil. Those early recruits, like Nick Slatton, Paul Slough, Evan Liberty and Dustin Hurd were the cream of the crop, with higher rates of high school diplomas, better scores on qualification tests, and more affluent families. Economists said these sterling new recruits were indeed motivated by patriotism, but also by a weak economy. Four years later, thousands of soldiers had come home in boxes, and tens of thousands more were walking around at home dealing with life-altering injuries. In 2005, a majority of Americans said for the first time that it had been a mistake to send troops to Iraq. The Army missed its recruiting target that year by 7,000 soldiers, so no draft. That meant National Guardsmen like Paul were activated and sent on full tours of duty. Paul and his buddy, J.T. Thompson, both former active duty Army, spent a grueling year patrolling and doing personal security detail. Their comrades at arms were truck drivers and college students and other weekend warriors who were doing their time in the Guard. This is Paul talking, and then JT. But it was a rotation, a year-long rotation. I think we started off in Basra. Everybody shows up in Kuwait and finds their way over the berm, and eventually finding our ultimate destination at Talil Air Base. Went around and um, we actually did convoy security. Um, there again, PSD work whenever they would go to sites. Um, we went from the southern border of Iraq all the way to the Turkish border and out to the Syrian border at Al-Assad and kind of anywhere in between. In Iraq at that time when we were there uh, in 2005, it was right at the beginning of the insurgency. It was very chaotic. The, the people that we were fighting knew that we could not engage civilians, so they liked to immerse themselves in the civilian population. It was very, very difficult to distinguish targets. It was a long, violent deployment with lots of chances for heroics or death. This is JT talking about Paul's cool under fire. Pay attention because this will be important later on. We, you know, there were several of us. We kind of rotate in and out of when we would go on, you know, go on duty. I was off on that one. When they got back from their mission, you know, obviously I heard what happened. And I asked Paul, I said, Paul, what, you know, what happened? And he said, you know, we took fire. And um, he said that the, the rounds were going past his head. And he said it sounded like bees buzzing, which you actually know that's pretty close if, if, uh, if you hear that sound. Uh, snaps and buzzes are, are very good indicators that they're getting close at shooting at you. And so I asked him, I said, why did you not light into him? And he said, I just didn't have positive identification. Or we, we call it PID. So he said, I didn't have PID. You know, he had a 50 caliber machine gun that could have cut through a building. And he, you know, he just didn't fire back. He said, I didn't have PID. In early 2005, Evan Liberty got his wish to join the combat mission. 
a Marine Corps buddy told him that he could go straight to Iraq with a company called Blackwater. Eric Prince had branched out from delivering battlefield supplies and now was working for the State Department, protecting diplomats and other Americans trying to bring stability to Iraq. Evans' first assignment for Blackwater brought him into a pivotal event, the prosecution of captured Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein. I spent the first couple months of my first contract on a um, a traditional protection team, and then my team was chosen to go out in the desert and protect some scientists that were going to dig up a mass grave site to get evidence and prepare for Saddam Hussein's trial. So um, the, the dig went relatively slowly at first, and, and I remember spending a lot of time just out there in the desert and, and watching them dig and, and protecting them and them at the same time. And all of a sudden, they started to reach where the bodies were at, and it was pretty shocking to see um, the number, first of all, the number of bodies, and then also you can tell that the people had been told to, to gather all their their possessions because you could see they had multiple layers of clothes, they had um, a lot of stuff with them, but you would see um, what would I would assume to be a woman holding a baby with a, with a hole in the skull, and it was just a very shocking and eye-opening experience. To me, it basically validated our mission over there and made, made me proud about what we were doing and, and the cause we were contributing to, and whether Saddam Hussein had uh, weapons of mass destruction or not, uh, he had to be stopped, and, and I feel proud, proud that I had um, I contribute, contributed to that cause. Saddam's death didn't end the suffering of the Iraqi people. Almost 17,000 civilians died in 2005 in Iraq. A third of them were killed by coalition forces. Nearly half died in rising tribal violence and insurgent attacks, according to IraqiBodyCount.org. One in every five casualties was a woman or a child. And it was about to get much, much worse. Raven 2-3 is a production of Think Again Studios. It's written by Gina Keating and Mike Flaherty. Our producers are Ashton Smith, Gina Keating, and Mike Flaherty. Executive producers are Chai Ling, Lindsay Fellows, and Valerie McGowan. Mitchell Weinbaum edited this episode, and he also serves as our associate producer, along with Kyle Hartford and Tina Graff. Lindsay Fellows and Aaron Fullen supervise the music. Our theme song is performed by Chloe Caroline. Thanks to Anne and Neil Corkery for their kindness and generosity. Finally, we owe a debt to our men and women in uniform. Thank you for defending our freedoms so that strangers may one day enjoy them as well. For more information about this podcast, go to thinkagain.me. There you can find additional research and primary resources regarding the case of Raven 2-3. You can learn about future episodes and receive updates as events continue to evolve. You can also learn more about our future projects, as well as award-winning films, music, and books created by our team. Thanks to everyone who donated so much of your time and talent to this passion project.